Welcome back to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. I'm the Carolina Weather Group's James Briarton. Later this month, NASA and SpaceX hope to launch Crew-7 to the International Space Station to continue science into exploring human exploration of space. In the years ahead, we will go to the moon and eventually to Mars. And once Crew-7 settles in at the International Space Station, it will be time to get Crew-6 back home here to Earth. We now are going to take a look back, an encore presentation of our behind-the-scenes experience into what went into that Crew-6 launch, right here from Ken. So by my count, this is at least the third time today that I've been speechless without anything to say. It's, it's been an exciting day. We've seen so many things that I wasn't expecting to see. But as you may have noticed by now, there's a group of people here behind me who all seem to be trained on at least one more really cool thing. Welcome to Launch Complex 39A. That's SpaceX Falcon 9. That is going to carry Dragon and four humans to space, continuing to support the International Space Station and science that is someday going to carry us beyond low Earth orbit into the moon, to Mars, and beyond. Today's video is sponsored by HelloFresh. Stay tuned for a special discount code available to you, our Carolina Weather Group fans. I'm James Briarton at the Kennedy Space Center, and this is a special edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We're getting on the bus now. Quite a few people here. All right, so I think the two hardest objectives have been cleared so far for me. One, getting up early. That is not easy for me. And two, they did manage to give me one of these. I think everyone on this bus was probably slightly paranoid that for some reason we'd get here and have forgotten some form of identification. But the day is about to get started. When we checked in, we all got this bag. Should we see what's in the goodie bag? Let's see, we got a International Space Station patch. That's really cool here. We got down at the bottom, I think we got some pins and things. Let's see, I think we got a calendar. Lots of information, which I think will be the theme of the day. Oh, look at this. Is this a poster? I think it's a poster. What is this? Second calendar. Because what's better than one calendar? But, but two calendars. Two calendars. It's a little before 10 now on Friday. We just wrapped up sitting in the actual press briefing room, meeting our fellow attendees of the NASA social. And I work for a software company now. I do video stuff. One fun fact, my dad was a truck driver in this area. When they launched Apollo 11, he charged people to sit on top of his truck. So I'm a huge aviation nerd. A fun fact that I didn't put on the application that would have made way too much sense to put on the application is my grandfather worked for Grumman during the Apollo error and worked on the lunar module. There are two radios on the ISS, so kids get to talk live to an astronaut on the space station over ham radio. Hi, Molly. They told us we have about 12 minutes that we can walk around here at the press site. 
and we can use this time to create content, uh, which is what we are all here to do. And I think this is the first time of many times during this trip where I'm gonna have a small window of time to get my words right, to figure out what to say, and I just can't get over the view. I don't, I don't know what to say. What are you supposed to say? But I guess what I can manage to say is we are in the presence of some historic places, structures, roads, lands. This building behind me is the Vehicle Assembly Building. It is a enormous building. And it is where many generations of space vehicles have been, like its name suggests, assembled vertically and then make their trek out to one of many historic launch pads here at Kennedy Space Center. We're getting ready now to go across the street into the Vehicle Assembly Building. This is going to be one of the coolest parts of the entire weekend, going inside this building where most visitors to the complex don't get to go. But before we do, a routine security check. So how tall is the Vehicle Assembly Building? About 530 feet tall. Wow. Um, so this is the building uh, where we stacked um, the Artemis 1 moon rocket and where we'll stack the uh, coming Artemis missions. But this is also the building where all the Saturn V's for the Apollo program and all 135 space shuttles were stacked in here. Um, so some people refer to this building as the Space Cathedral because um, there's a lot of history in here. Um, as we're making our way down the building, I'll try to point out um, some of the uh, original components that were used for Apollo. And um, this is kind of their testing and checkout cells, right? So before you stack all the pieces on top of each other, you want to make sure that they're all going to fit together and they're all ready for launch. Um, you can kind of think of the rockets we bring in here as a kind of highly explosive set of Lego, right? We're kind of all roads lead to Kennedy Space Center and here at the Vehicle Assembly Building, we get all the pieces and parts of the rockets. During the Artemis 1 launch, yes. they rolled back yes. for hurricanes. Uh -huh. What are hurricanes like inside this building? Yes, yeah, so this Florida, so it's an occurrence that, you know, we're prepared for. Um, so essentially, you know, all the doors, I mean, they're mostly closed right now, but they kind of, you know, close up the building nice and snug. And yeah, this building is prepared to take on hurricanes. So, so do you want to survive an hurricane? Yes. And the building next door, the Launch Control Center, that's the place you want to be. So when we have hurricanes here, there's a whole team that rides them out. And so they get asleep and have a sleepover in the Launch Control Center, making sure that the center is all safe and sound. But what happens is the crawler transporter rolls under here at its top speed of about one mile per hour. Um, the platform, you can kind of see it sitting on yellow jacks right now. So the crawler comes up under there, raises up, that gray platform sits on it, and then rolls to the launch pad. This day is insane. This is by far insane. Just to give you an idea of how tall. We just took the elevator up to the 16th floor. So here's two of our high bays. Um, this one right across from us was used for space shuttle. Um, so you can see uh, the orange platforms in there and the gray. Um, we can't see it, but in this gray box over here, that's where the access point into the shuttle was. Um, so if they needed to, you know, put payloads in there or um, put people in there to get everything configured for the astronauts, that was kind of their access point. Um, for shuttle. 
And you can kind of see the big doors a little better. Um, on the bottom level, it's kind of like big barn doors that open up horizontally. And then this way, they open up vertically. It takes about 45 minutes to get the doors all the way opened up. Um, but you can kind of see where the space shuttle maxed out um, on this side. So they didn't need to open all those vertical doors to get the shuttle out. Um, but for Artemis and Apollo, uh, they do have to open those doors all the way up because they're uh, so much taller than the space shuttle was. The vehicle assembly building is not the place to work if you don't like heights. It is the tallest single-story building by volume. And it just seems to go forever. Right here, uh, actually hooked up to the crane right now. The boosters are five segments tall. Uh, for Space Shuttle, they were four of these segments. Um, so this is the bottom segment. And actually, uh, the entire weight of the rocket is stacked um, on these solid rocket boosters. Um, so they're the first part of the rocket that gets stacked before they put the big orange uh, core stage in between them. And you can kind of see in there um, some of the platforms are extended um, in the high bay. So those platforms go in and out. Imagine giant hydraulic kitchen drawers. Um, that's essentially what those platforms are. And those are the access points for um, the workers to get to the rocket. And they come to us via rail from Utah. Um, then they wheel them over here into this. Uh, the crane team gets all ready to go. And then up right where we were standing and over and down into high bay three. Yeah, so full scale of, of one fifth of one of the boosters. And so you got two of those plus the core stage plus the upper stage. So it's hard, hard to visualize it, but it's a pretty big rocket. <laughs> we haven't even reached lunchtime yet on Friday and already the first big surprise inside the vehicle assembly building waiting for us the director of the Kennedy Space Center. Anyways, I'm super excited to have you guys out here today. You're the first woman to hold this position and we're getting ready to send the first woman to the moon. Absolutely. What does all of that mean to you? We had our first Artemis One mission, as you said, um, at the end capstone of our 60th anniversary. It was a big anniversary present for us. But yeah, first, uh, uh, first woman and first person of color uh, on the surface of the moon, Lunar. I have my personal favorite that I picked out in the astronaut that I want to uh, go, but who knows? I'll be making a, an announcement for um, the crewed flight of Artemis Two sometime this year, soon, uh, sometime this year. Um, but then, our, of course, Artemis Three is uh, when the um, crew will actually be descending down to the surface of the moon. So that'll be the that'll be the really exciting. Right and then, of course, Artemis three will be bringing up our astronauts in Orion, matching up and bringing them down. 2025 is when we're shooting for, but there is some, there are some complexities and some uh, dependencies there, so we'll see. There are a lot of cool things at NASA. I think the VAB might be one of my favorite because it is the persistent home of historic missions to the moon and eventually to beyond. This is the one that has been here throughout. Traveling is great, but coming home to nothing but a butter packet and a teaspoon of milk, that's not much help. And when you got nothing to make, let's face it, that just drives up the budget even more. You buy more takeout, and now you're spending more money. And that's where HelloFresh comes in. You can get fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. We all want to save money this time of year. But did you know that HelloFresh helps you save money all year round? In fact, HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% cheaper than takeout. 
Fast and Fresh Recipes, Hello's latest line of meals features robust flavors and filling portions. Ready in 15 minutes or less, you can enjoy the taste and quality of recipes like falafel power bowls, seared steak and potatoes, baronet sauce, or my favorite, the Southwest pork and bean burrito. To try HelloFresh and avoid that empty kitchen, and that next trip to the grocery store, you can find a special link for Carolina Weather Group fans in the description of this video. It gets you a discount and free shipping and helps support our show. Why don't you give HelloFresh a try starting today? So come off the bus. You'll notice that the vehicle assembly building is behind me. And that's because right across the street here is the parking lot for the crawler. This is the machine that carries spacecraft, including Artemis, out to the launch pad when they are ready to go from the vehicle assembly building out to the launch pad and prepare for launch. Well, anyway, this crawler, this is crawler two. There's two crawlers. Uh, there's one on the other side, which was obviously crawler one. And they were built for the Apollo program. And this one was the second one built. It was built in 1966. Uh, the company who built it was a mining company, Marion Power and Shovel. And uh, <clears throat> they actually pretty much assembled it in Ohio and then brought it down here and then reconstructed it. Um, it's uh, 130 by 115. It weighs uh, 6.6 .6 million pounds. Really, we don't travel any more than a mile an hour. How much fuel? It can, uh, it can hold 5,000 gallons. There's two 2,500-gallon tanks, one on each end. How long have you been driving this? I hate saying this. Uh, about 40 years. Wow. wow. How, many, how many missions have you supported then? about every shuttle mission. So. The drive obviously takes a while. How long is a driving shift per driver and what do you do to keep focus during that? To run the crawler, say like on a rollout operation, uh, it takes about 18 to 20 people. Okay, and that's including technicians on the ground and in the pump room and in the engine rooms. And we all usually take about two to three hour shifts and rotate. It's not like a car, you can't take it out every day. So the only time you get a chance to actually uh, train somebody is during an operation. Oh, there's no way goes. Right. There's no, you know, in other words, yeah, there's no simulator or anything like that. It's the real deal. Yeah, NASA really doesn't look too much, like you said, anymore to low Earth orbit. They're trying to move, of course, to the moon and beyond. So they're trying to carry the heavier rocket with the heavier, you know, uh, payloads. Artemis is much heavier than the shuttle was. Um, in shuttle, we were carrying about uh, 12 million and uh, right now we're carrying about 16. So it's upgraded. We had to upgrade all the, uh, the mechanics on the bottom. We did all, redid all the rollers that the shoes run on so it could carry a heavier load. We strengthened all the trucks. We added steel inside of each of the trucks so it could handle a, a heavier load. Um, all the gel cylinders, that's the jacking cylinders that raise the chassis up and down. We changed all those out so they can handle the heavier load. We added new engines up top in the engine room so they could uh, actually produce more power because the mobile launcher compared to the uh, mobile launch platform required a lot more power because we're carrying a tower and the tower needed more power. And we needed a more of a purge on the vehicle. So it had to, uh, we had to have a lot more power. If you had to try and build one of these, I'd hate to think how long it would take you to do it. Uh, when, this, uh, when the crawlers originally uh, built in the 60s, um, they ran about $10 million, $10 million apiece in the 60s. So you think about that now, if you go to today's dollars, yeah, we're looking hundreds of millions. Out of all of the things I imagine we could be doing today, going inside the crawler, I, don't, I didn't even know that was within the realm of expectations.
guess you don't need a brake pedal, do you? Um, that is a brake pedal. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're learning. If you will reach right down there and lift that little lid and flip that switch. This? Yep. It's all connected to uh, the PLC, Programmable Logic Controller. So everything's computer driven. Was it always computer driven even back in the 60s or? Nope, it was all relays. Wow. Back in the 60s, there was a lot of uh, mechanical. The, the cab has changed quite a bit from Apollo to now. On Apollo, there were actually two consoles, and <clears throat> you actually uh, steered it like uh, they used a jet fighter controller. Left to right, you can see the first is forward, neutral, reverse. It's like your transmission. Talking about a gas pedal, it's called your speed control, the big knob right there. And then you have different steering modes, great circle, crab, independent. The other cab, which is diagonally opposite of here, so it steers the other two trucks. And then, of course, it's the beautiful little steering wheel that everybody loves. It's small, but it's effective. And you can see it's plus or minus six degrees. Six degrees obviously doesn't sound like a lot, but over, <clears throat> over the entire length of the transporter, a six-degree turn equals to a 500-foot radius. And that's, that's the tightest the crawler can turn, 500 feet. That's the sharpest turn it can make. As far as moving uh, vehicles, uh, we have a wind restriction, of course. You can't move uh, in more than about, I think it's 40 knot winds. Um, and there's, not that there's a restriction, but the crawler will still move when there's lightning out there. But obviously you can't have anybody on the ground. They have to be in their vehicles. And uh, really when we're moving, a, 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 well now it's an Artemis to the pad. Uh, we try to make sure that, that uh, there's no lightning within 25 miles. Right now we're on the crawler, which has moved shuttles and now Artemis, retrofitted to move not only the vehicle, but also the launcher, that, that tower that's conveniently stored right in the background of my shot right now, to the launch pad. This is a very historic piece of equipment, which I did not expect to get the opportunity to walk on today. The one, of course, that shot off Artemis 1, and there are four interface points that match up the four interface points here on top of the crawler. And we jack the mobile launcher up about three feet, take it to whatever destination needs to go, typically pad B or the VAB. Everybody likes to equate it. It's 90 foot square. It's like a baseball diamond. Same, same as a baseball diamond to give you an idea of size. I mean, I'm yet again speechless. And I know I sound like a broken record, but NASA is just one time capsule after another that is moving into the future with more and more innovations built upon legacy. It's incredible. We're over here in the flight operations area of Kennedy Space Center, just adjacent to the landing strip that the shuttle used to use. And we're learning a little bit about the aviation support that goes into launching to space. Uh, basically a small utility helicopter we use here at NASA to do uh, a couple of things. One of which is um, to do some of the filming for some of our launches. What will happen is uh, you will get a shot of what we like to call a, a wide-angle shot from high altitude. That'll be us in a little helicopter with, with the uh, camera that'll get that wide-angle shot. So usually it's about 15 to 25 seconds that we'll get. It's dynamic, it's beautiful, it's you know nighttime. Uh, we'll be up providing that. So that's one of the, one of the things that we do with the aircraft. Safe distance away from from um, the Falcon 9 as it launches, and it's a, an incredible shot. It's incredibly dynamic, um, from like 3,000 to 4,000 feet. It looks really neat, especially at night. So, so let me 
open the open the front up. You know, all the other things that are in here, but of course we do have custom NASA seats. Why does that Why does that matter? It just matters because it's awesome. <laughs> custom Custom NASA seats. I'll even face it this way. Beautiful seats. They look great. I mean, come on. What's there not to love? So I have uh, generally a single pilot aircraft that actually has an autopilot in it, so I can fly it by myself in instrument and meteorological conditions as well. So if the weather's bad, I can fly it by myself with an autopilot. So if I get in here, which can happen, and as it boots up, this is kind of what what some of it looks like as it's booting up. So um, what I mean by MFDs or multifunctional displays, they're basically displays that um, can be interchanged. So, but if to answer your question, analog, analog, like steam gauges, I don't have any steam gauges in here wow. except for this. So um, that's a lot of trust, but it's a heavily and very reliable aircraft. I mean, uh, the best helicopter that I've ever flown. So um, you can quote me on that. How many different radios do you have to coordinate through all the different groups that you're probably working with at one time? Uh, I, I'd say about eight radios. Wow. Um, even more than that, if I count them all right, uh, there's like eight or nine radios. Yeah, and during Artemis, I mean, it was instrumental that everyone communicated positively and everyone knew where everyone was at because that coordination is key to mission success. Do you, are you guys involved with kind of clearing the launch area in case uh, a boat strays in? Or yeah, whatever? that's a very good question. That is a part of our role as well. They call that... Um, um, sea surveillance. So basically, we go out over the ocean up to sometimes 25, 30 miles out just to ensure that no one's out there. So we'll get a, a, a target or a contact. We'll go out and investigate to see if they're inside of that controlled area. And we'll nicely tell them that they need to leave that area <laughs> or give them kind of a moment of pause to kind of let them know, you know, and a NASA helicopter shows up, you know, at a certain altitude. We definitely want to make sure that they get the they get the, the message. <laughs> NASA, we're here to help. Yeah. And we have people in the back that will do that sort of stuff. We even have a sign that's that basically is it, it, yeah. basically says, yeah, something like that. A, hey, um, hi, we're NASA. We're here to help. We need you to basically uh, back off outside of the protected area. So about a, a year ago, there was a launch that was scrapped. There was right. because of a there was cruise ship. There was right, uh -huh. yes. and I was not. We were not working that one. So, so perhaps. Um, Okay, Complex uh, 26 was originally built by the Army Ballistic Missile Agency to test Redstone and Jupiter intermediate range ballistic missiles. The building itself is reinforced concrete. Uh, the walls are about two foot thick, and the ceiling varies from five foot thick at the edge to eight foot thick in the center. If you follow me in, we'll go into the firing room. Okay, you're standing inside firing room B. Uh, both fire, there were two firing rooms, as I said before. Both would have been identical. All the equipment you see in here is from that time period, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Most of it was actually used in this building. Uh, if you look out the window, you can see the launch pad out there, where that little uh, fits this area off, about 300 feet from us. I, I love getting, especially some of the SpaceX guys in here, uh, some of their new hires. They'll come on, I'll show them where the pad is, and they, inevitably, one of them will ask us, where did the crew go when, the, when they went, were launched? I'll tell them they were right in here. And everything was hardwired. You had a cable, a copper cable, running from each of these consoles out to the rocket. Problem is, after about 400 feet, the voltage drops off to a point you lose that signal. 
So that's why it was as close. And when you get down to the last part of the count, they shut all the blast doors and turned off the AC system. Because if something goes wrong, you don't want to suck all those toxic gases in here. And so, like I say, you had 25, 30 guys. It, it is uh, hot. It's summer in Florida. The temperature is 212 degrees, humidity 4,000%. Just a typical, typical Florida summer day. Everybody smoked. In fact, it was so prevalent, there were ashtrays built into the consoles. But everything revolved around this console here in the center of the room. This is where the launch director or the test director sat. And basically, in this room, when they were doing a launch, he was basically God. Now, everything came down to these two switches. They were flipped at the same time. One would start the turbo pumps, feeding the fuel and oxidizer to the engine. The second one would light the igniter. Somebody liked to give it a try. You know, you're tired, you're irritable. Let's get an irritable look on you. No, no, not, 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 not disgusted, irritable. You know, like you're, like you're going to kill this guy. If he doesn't get this camera out of your, your face, you're going to kill him. <laughs> All right, ready? Three, two, one, launch. And from what we understand, that what you're hearing and the, the vibration level is pretty accurate to a, to a launch here at that time. The noise level, wow. Okay, over in this room, in here today, we have a uh, Burroughs Mod 1 uh, guidance computer. Now in here, this is the core memory. This is like uh, basically the same as RAM in a modern computer. Now this computer, now you got to remember, this was late 50s, early 60s, and this was considered bleeding edge technology. And this computer had a core memory of 258 bytes. <laughs> not megabytes, not kilobytes, but bytes. And this is what we use to put John Glenn into orbit. Here we go. Well, my name is Jamie Draper. It's nice to meet all of you. I'm, I serve as the museum director for the Cape Canaveral Space Force Museum. We used to be the Air Force Space and Missile Museum. We just changed our name a few months ago. Hangar C behind me is the oldest missile assembly building on the Cape. It dates to 1953. Werner von Braun and his team worked out of this space initially, and this is where we preserve and display the crown jewels of the museum collection. And just wait, I always feel like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. This is going to blow your minds. He wasn't kidding when he said they keep the good stuff in here. Outside, it just looks like a hangar. You would drive right past it and never even realize the history that's inside this building. So welcome to our playground. This is a unique collection. You won't see anything like this anywhere in the world. This is basically the hardware that backed our Cold War policies and began our space programs. Each one of these is so unique, you could build an individual museum around each individual piece. It's so steeped in history. The SNARK right over here, I'll point out just a few quick highlights, uh, but the SNARK is my happy little guy. I really like him. That's our first intercontinental cruise missile, jet engined and had a distance of thousands of miles. So over 90 of those launched, one veered off course along the eastern range and uh, crashed somewhere in the jungles of Brazil. They so still haven't, found, still haven't it. found it to this day. 
So if you find yourself hiking through the Amazon, keep your eyes open for some scrap metal. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to display a piece of that. And one of those could deploy a nuclear warhead to Soviet Union in a matter of hours, right, Bill? The Jupiter behind this redstone launched our first full-size re-entry vehicle into space and our first successful bioflights. And then the Thor and Thor Able behind those launched some of our earliest satellites. So there's this theme of develop for destruction, develop for deployment of warheads, and repurpose for our early, earliest space exploration programs. So on that note, I might hand over to Bill. Fixing to go take a look at Von Braun's office. Oh yeah. His office space. Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. Yep. Oh my God, I think I'm gonna have a heart attack. Yeah, I, so I mean, like he die. said it's not that big of a deal and I said, I don't care. Oh, well, no, I mean, I, I don't mean that big a deal. It doesn't look like much right now. Yeah. Okay, I don't care. Because we've just, they've just done a bunch of uh, asbestos removal in there. Uh -huh. So it's stripped down to the walls. We're but... gonna go see Von Braun's office. Sweet? Yeah. No, yeah, that's pretty much a suite. <laughs> <laughs> We had, yeah, here, these two rooms. Uh, we're, like I say, 99.99% sure because uh, one of the things in our research, in one of the biographies, they would talk about how, whenever they were doing Redstone, the early Redstone launches, he would go up into the top of the lighthouse there to watch from. Well, at that time, we knew uh, they were launching off Pad 4, which is just down the road. And this is the closest office to the, uh, to the lighthouse. Plus the floor in here is completely different from the rest of the building, all this tile. It's not found anywhere else. So we're pretty sure this was the office and this was the conference room. This is where all the planning took place for Explorer One, for uh, the Redstone program. It was all done in these two rooms. Our plans, our long range plans is to, we're looking for photos of him here and we want to restore it back to the way it looked then. And how long ago did you guys find this? Uh, well, we it actually it's been fairly recent because for a number of years, no one was allowed up into this space because of asbestos okay. problems. And so we just recently, about a year ago, did the, did the removal, which was complete. So we started roaming around up here trying to find. Uh, one of the things we're looking at doing, uh, we're moving, well, we, we've got uh, parts of the museum scattered in storage all around the base. Uh, one of the, what we want to do is consolidate everything into this building. So we're in a lab now where they are doing experiments to simulate growing plants in space because the longer the missions go and the further from Earth they go, the more dependent astronauts will be on growing their own food. This can't be a food-intensive activity. Uh, the crew is not not devising our crew complements by sending up people who are botanists and farmers like the Martian did. You may see that Mars looks like it's at the end of the roadmap, but in actuality, because of the needs of the food system, it's really the first area we're working towards. Prepackaged food currently, um, what we fly in the ISS begins to degrade in certain nutrients after like 18 months. For Artemis, I can send the prepackaged food up there and we're good to go, no issues. But for a mission to Mars, for the, that's potentially two to three years, make it longer in duration, now I have to supplement that diet because certain key nutrients are starting to degrade. So right now we're moving forward with some really cool plants. We're doing uh, cucumbers and melons. So I think what's interesting is we'll be able to utilize the, the work that we do here to expand 
the, um, the amount of foods that are available, staff has to leave in the future so that we can alleviate menu fatigue because we don't want them to get tired of yeah. what they're eating. Or engineer plants that have less inedible material, more fruit associated with them. So we're actually using more of the plants than what you would traditionally grow today. One of the plant growth systems we have on ISS is called the Advanced Plant Habitat, or the APH. And the experiments that go on there are called the pH experiments. PHO4, I didn't mention last time, but we grew peppers in uh, in the advanced plant habitat. So, and then this one is going to be PHO7. Okay, And what we're using are is technology, science carriers, sensors to help us identify what's going on inside the boxes. And then we develop hardware here in our makerspace, like 3D printing, fabrication, rapid prototyping, to make everything work. One of the features of this experiment is something that we haven't done yet, is collecting a sample from the root zone in microgravity. We use this growth media. It's called Barcelite. It's the red clay that you see on baseball fields. And if you open the box in space, it'll float everywhere. So how do you get a root sample back to here? Well, one of our students came up with a flying device that's 3D printed. We're using a thread on the on the actual lid. This screws in, and then a sample or a core comes out that holds the sample in it. Once the astronaut pulls it out, they put it into the negative 80 below freezer, and then we bring it back to Earth and do analysis with it. So it's really cool. I don't know much about the analysis, but I do know about the prototyping and the drawings and the 3D printing. So it's like where um, all microbiology and engineers and biology come together. This is it completely. Out here at Launch Complex 39A, SpaceX has built its own vehicle assembly building. They no longer uh, utilize the crawler path all the way out here to the launch complex from NASA's vehicle assembly building. They'll use that structure behind us to construct the Falcon 9 rocket with the Dragon capsule on it first horizontally. They'll pull it out and then turn it vertical, which is different than how NASA does it, where they put everything vertically together in the VAB, and then they'll bring it out to the uh, launch complex behind us. That launch complex, you can see, is protected by a lightning rod that is atop the complex. Helps protect the vehicle from any of those pests Florida thunderstorms. The vehicle itself right now is still on the launch complex behind us, but just slightly out of view because it's actually being held up right now by an arm that will move out of way in time to carry Crew 6 safely up to space. Also out here at the launch complex will be home to SpaceX's Starship. That's the separate tower that is still under construction here behind us. And in case you were wondering, the crawler path is still here, but it's technically a road to nowhere because ever since SpaceX built their vehicle assembly building on the crawler path at the base of the launch complex, it's now just a pile of rocks, a historic pile of rocks. All right, we're getting off the bus back here at the press site. It is Saturday. And at 4.30, we're going to be doing a Q&A panel with some NASA leadership. An astronaut who was the commander of the SpaceX Crew-3 mission to the International Space Station and is in the running to potentially go to the moon as part of Artemis. He's in the Artemis project. Good afternoon and welcome to NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience with amateur radio and NASA going together? Yeah, I enjoy it. I think it's a, you mentioned it's kind of a capstone project for, for students and it's a, it's a cool 
thing to actually do with the project. So you're not just building a radio or you know going through the mechanics of it. You actually get to use it at the end and then to talk to the space station is was, was pretty awesome. Uh, we used it in one of our sims as well because if you lose space-to-ground loops and the Russian comm system, you can actually use the ham radio. Um, so that's a, it, it's a tertiary, a quadruciary backup, if you, if you will, and you have to then convince the person on the ground that you're not hoaxing them. Like, no kidding, this is the ISS. Go call someone. Uh, call, call Houston. You're a trained professional, but as a human being, I wonder what it's like dealing with the suspense, waiting to find out who's going to fly Artemis 2, 3, and beyond. It's actually pretty easy. It was, I'd be happy for with anyone in the office to do it. I don't think it matters who it is. We'll all be excited and all fall in line to support that person and those people. Uh, I think, you know, we were actually talking, I was talking with some of the PA folks. I think the most common misconception about astronauts is that our job is to fly in space. Well, that is a job. But most of our job is not flying in space. You mentioned 28 years, which is the same number Tom Marshburn, who is my pilot on Crew 3, was in the office. And so out of 28 years in the office, he flew like 500 some days. But that that's a when you look at the percentages, that's a small amount. But it's flying in space is awesome. Don't get me wrong. But we love our day job. How is the sleep experience while you're out in space? And it's a little bit different for everyone. Everyone sleeps a little bit, restrains themselves a little differently. But I'm sure you've all had that feeling when you start to fall asleep at night. And if your arm goes off the corner of the bed or something like that, and you like startle up, um, and you've probably all had the experience of being in a roller coaster and the feeling of your stomach coming up. So you have that, I mean, you are in free fall when you're in space. And so as soon as you close your eyes, you snap back awake because your body is telling you you're falling. So it's really hard for your brain to ignore that because if you're in, if you were to be falling, like walking forward and falling, you couldn't fall asleep while you're falling. It's just your brain won't allow that to happen. You'll wake up before you hit the ground. On orbit, I think it was like three or four weeks in was the first time I had a dream where I was floating in the dream. And that next day was the first time that uh, as much as as much as you know you can use the walls and the ceiling in space, you'll always reorient your body for conversations and to talk, to work in the way that it looks like on the ground because the laptops and the equipment is, is oriented a certain direction. But after that time, it didn't matter. And I could come around a corner, it didn't matter. It, it was, and all of a sudden, like, you notice little things, so like the first few weeks, the ground is always asked, like, uh, did you, you know, did you power off that payload? And that's their gentle way of saying, hey, idiot, you like kicked it with your foot because we're just like tearing through ethernet cables and bumping into things. Um, but after that, after that three weeks, once that clicked, it was like, oh, everything makes sense. After I landed, the first time I was, um, I got up in the middle of the night, like it was like 10 hours after we landed. And even though the chair was on the ground, I could not convince myself, it was dark in the room, we're in crew quarters, that I was not standing on the wall. Like I actually had to have my wife like come, like, like help me get off the ground because I couldn't, I was convinced I was going to fall over because I was on the wall. Obviously, I was not on the wall. I was the chair. I was doing this with the chair, but I, I couldn't connect. And then about the first good sleep I had that wasn't ambient-induced after landing, I had a dream where I was talking to people in the PMM, and they were floating, but I was standing on the ground in the PMM. And when I woke up from that, everything was fine, like totally back to normal. Um, but yeah, everyone – and then once you do adjust to sleeping, some people like to be bungeed in. Some people like to free float. I, don't, I mean, I know on the shuttle, different people did different things. Um, so that's kind of personal preference, but it's the best sleep I've had in my life. I have three young kids, so no one was waking me up in the middle of the night. I went, so it was awesome. I didn't have any problems sleeping. <laughs> our panelists for being here today, and thank all of our social media content creators and influencers here in the room. So, 
It's Sunday night. Launch day is finally here. The sun is setting. I've got my arms full of batteries and food and lights and microphones and everything you could think of to possibly, with some hope, bring you live streaming coverage of this rocket launch tonight. I'm kind of afraid I'm going to drop something here. Hang on. Um, I'm Jared Smith in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, we are going to be talking with uh, James Brierton on the ground at the NASA SpaceX Falcon 9 Crew 6. Yes, Jared, um, I'm here with all my bus peeps at Kennedy Space Center, currently waiting for the astronauts to come out of their quarters here. Uh, I will again mention that a lot of the science that goes on in the International Space Station and the NASA program has trickled down to at home. Here come the astronauts. Here they are. All right, That's the cloud funny. is uh, clapping here. You can see they're lined up in a row, waving to their friends and family. The door's now coming up on the Teslas in that very sci-fi style that I'm sure Elon Musk was going for. And you can see they're going to walk the line now. This is like the red carpet of space yes. launches right now. It is like mm -hmm. the red carpet of space launches. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Who are you wearing? I'm wearing Musk. All right, we seem to be on the move now. Yep, so there's the security detail doing its thing. Cheer from staff, friends, and family gathered and waving. I guess I should wave too. Shoot my guys, I just got waved up by an astronaut. How special do you feel right now? Um, I, I, I kind of feel like I'm dreaming right now, honestly, Candace. <laughs> like I'm going to wake up and find out later that this was all a dream. Uh, NASA TV will provide you some aerials because the helicopter that we got to see and sit in the other day just went overhead. And I know that's got a camera on board because I yep. All right, guys, I'm running back to the bus. So if All I right. that, I'll see you at the press site. Um, we now have a look. The astronauts are arriving at the rocket uh, right now. You can see that in the corner here in NASA TV. And, uh, you know, uh, James is still en route to his final location uh, for the to watch the launch. And we have Candace Jordan with us here. Uh, you know, a little a little error can mean a big difference when you're talking moving yeah. at 17,000. Oh, yep. Yep. They're leaning back. Yep. They're, 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 <laughs> they're taking a look. They're sizing it up right now. Looks like one of the elevators doesn't work either. It looks like they tried to go to one of them. They realized that there was a rope in front of it. <laughs> and so they're having to take the other one. So there's only. Make sure that they're all, you know. Yep, there they go. There they go. We got the other two now uh, sizing it up, getting a good look I can't at it. Tell, I can't tell who's who here, but it is very funny to watch these. Oh, it's great. Now they're going to be uh, waiting for the elevator. I think they're walking they to, the to the wrong, wrong one. Yep, they're going to the Are wrong door. Are they going to do again. it too? Yep, yes. yep, yep. <laughs> Lethal jump over. They got Listen, so I'm many just... mission details and no one told them which elevator to go to. Listen, I'm just narrating what everybody's thinking right now. They were all like, go to the wrong one, go to the wrong one. Oh, I mean, God. that's what we're here for, right? <laughs> Kennedy Space Center. You guys like my backdrop, by the way? I love that. Way better than mine. <laughs> it's not it's not as good as mine no, I'm this, is, a, this is not virtual i could go touch it <laughs> i don't think the police would like that but i could no they See, you can do anything you want the question is should no. you no i definitely I, not if i want to stay to watch the rocket <laughs> yeah so uh, looking pretty good here getting a nice little view of the vab uh, oh, that's right probably now. the helicopter 
Yeah. That is a beautiful shot. That helicopter just did a beautiful shot heading from that meatball that's behind me out to the uh-huh. launch pad about three and a half miles away. Uh, that might be, was it Shannon Gregory, Jim? Is that yes. what was the gentleman's name? The head of aviation who we met in his hangar the other day. Well, another one of those unscheduled, the bus just pulled in and you happen to be free to talk to us moment. Back now with uh, Jim Reed, a ham radio operator. But while you're watching the live broadcast right now with Jared and he's talking to Jim Reed about amateur radio, off camera, I'm running to the restroom. I was broadcasting for four hours. Kind of need a break. Yeah, no, we, we definitely need to do that. So there's a bus coming through. Have I heard anything from anything on the radio? If uh, if I wasn't chatting, I'd probably try and spot it trying to fly through the sky. Because usually on a really <laughs> clear night like this, you can see it. But I have not. Uh, no luck this time. And we're about three minutes left in the past. So, oh, all these folks are go- oh, they're going into launch control. Oh yes. So right at the bottom of the VAB here is uh, mm-hmm. is the launch control facility, and uh, a bus just pulled up with some uh, security officers, and they are uh, looks like that looked like the family convoy we saw earlier mm-hmm. when we. I can actually see from where I'm standing, Jared, some of mm-hmm. the that plume burn off, and that's completely mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. But it's I can actually see it, which. All right. So yeah, there's that there's that big the big plume of smoke there now. Or steam, rather. And again, completely normal. This is just a consequence of fueling a rocket with very, 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 very cold propellant. So, yeah, we're getting close here. Uh, we got a, James, we got a really cool story. Something we were talking about earlier is like, you know, what are some of the things you can scrub a launch? One of those things is boats that are in the way. Uh, Larry Butler on YouTube uh, shares this anecdote. He was sailing offshore from Miami to Charleston. He was south of the Cape. The cops stopped us and directed us to a safe distance. Two hours later, the shuttle blasted off right over our mast. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, they got to have the boats out of the way. You know, that's just something that you got to do. So it really cool story. Safety. On behalf of our entire team at SpaceX, we're honored to, we are honored to have you aboard Dragon Capsule Endeavor today for its next trip to the International Space Station. We wish you a great mission. Good luck. Godspeed and enjoy the ride. And thank you very much for those kind words. We'd like to thank all the trainers, technicians, engineers, decision makers, and planners who have uh, defined our mission ahead and trained us and um, given the faith in us to execute that mission. And Crew 6 is ready to launch. Yeah, but this thing is... Uh, uh, SpaceX, yeah. for awareness, we are seeing a T-tab load issue and are troubleshooting. We are currently still go but have further evaluation before making a final decision. We'll get you a final read before T0. What? Okay. And SpaceX Dragon Cops. Okay, you can't see me right now, but I just kind of like put my hands on my knees. And well, uh, we're going to find out this uh, issue that they just came across the troubleshooting. They're still go for launch, but we will find out. And then they have, they have five minutes to figure the out. terminal count. F9 tanks are pressurizing for strong back retract. They're continuing with their operations. That's a good sign. So Jared, we are about four and a half minutes out. You know, they can go at 145 or they're not going at all. Strong back is retracting. So I didn't really catch what the issue was. Did you catch? Uh, it was something about a maybe like a fuel load issue, something like that. But you can see now, you can see that some of the arms are beginning to retract away from the rocket yeah, they're here. still they're still proceeding. They are they yeah. are under the assumption that they're going to be able to get this whatever it is resolved in the next three minutes and forty seconds. 
Dragon um, is in terminal account and on internal power. Expecting an update of briefings to take place in the briefing room, not too far from where I'm standing, uh, later on in the middle of the night. This so is the we... LD on countdown one. Hold, hold, hold. Oh, we're standing we are holding. Do a T-tab ground issue. All right, and so back, they... Back on my knees. Hawk <laughs> uh, has started. Oh, I don't. I don't think my group knows here, Jared. Yeah, SpaceX with that call from LD. You are go to step into five decimal one hundred launch scrub. Well, we uh, are scrubbing five decimal one hundred launch scrub. That, that is insane. Oh, you can't just say it worked. Can you can you come back out to my view? I mean, you can keep the rocket up. Yeah, I just feel, yeah. I just feel like my my anguish here. Is... Yep, and uh, yeah. So was that last transmission that their troubleshooting worked? No, looks like. Oh, okay. um, no, it looks like in fact. Um... Let, let me let me say this. Am I disappointed? Of course I am. We got to like T minus five minutes, but safety is first. So if there is something that seems the slightest bit wrong, safety is first. Again, we talked earlier when they were closing the hatch. I had crew five, they had to close the hatch twice because they found a foreign object inside the capsule and it turned out to be a single strand of hair. That's how minute and complex these things are. Okay, so it is. So what they're talking about here is that they couldn't. And they that, couldn't. That's one forty-five. Yep. They they could not load. Basically, the starter is not working. The thing to actually start it, they couldn't load that. So the starter isn't working. Like the starter in your car. In a sense. So a lot of the NASA social people are gathered in a circle right now. I'm guessing if they didn't already got the memo, they got the memo now. Uh, I know four individuals that have to be the most disappointed. I'm sure relieved like we are that if there was something that wasn't working, they called it off, but you know those astronauts. They wanted to go to And Dragon, LD on countdown one. At this time, our offloads are underway. Vehicle is safe and proceeding nominally with offload. Expecting about a 50-minute offload. Okay. I don't think they're going to let me say Dragon copies about a 5-0-minute offload. We'll be sitting here waiting. <laughs> he sounds thrilled. Um, he sounds, yeah. Yeah, so it, uh... I think I think I think just to just to really try to articulate this, it's the timing, right? Yeah, everything was going so well. Here's what I was planning to say if this rocket had gone off tonight something about how marvelous and impressive it was. But I really wanted to, if I could find the words, talk about how despite all the conflict in the world, all the issues, there is hope for mankind. We can do this. 
And that proof is in spaceflight. It's in the technology that is developed. It's in the science research that is shared, the cooperative nature. We have four people sitting right now atop this rocket, built by private industry and being flown for public research. And those four people are from three different countries. So regardless of what tensions are out there, there is living proof that humankind can do amazing things and we can take a lot of inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, they're going to a laboratory that was built by multiple nations. We saw so much out here at Kennedy Space Center. I would have loved to see a rocket go off, but I have so much more I want to share with you coming up. So please find us wherever you are and uh, we look forward to bringing more to that. Uh, Jared, yep. to you, to Peter, this has been a once in a lifetime weekend for me. And I hope our viewers have enjoyed it as well. And so I will sign off here from Kennedy Space Center and send it back over to you. Sounds good. Thank you, James. Right, we're back on the bus. It's about two o'clock. As uh, you saw on our live broadcast, they scrubbed about T minus five minutes left due to a technical problem. Uh, Jim. Hi. We had a good conversation tonight about international space station ham radio operation. Yes, we did. How are we feeling now back on the bus, though? Um, disappointed. But completely understanding that yeah. stuff's got to work and you got to be 100% safe. You can't pull over, right? It's It's got to be right 100% before you go. Yeah. So, there's, there's no AAA. No, no AAA in space. I'm going to get a shot here of Holly, who we talked to tonight as well, too. But we couldn't really see her carrying all our stuff. I didn't say it on the broadcast tonight. Logistically, I don't know if I can stay another night. Yeah. NASA gives social participants that option to come on back. I've been here for a bunch of different launches, not my first scrub. So until it goes, I kind of am, it's not go until it goes. Yeah. Uh, because last year I came down and uh, it didn't go because there was a cruise ship in the exclusion zone. Uh, we talked about so, this tonight, yeah. Yeah, so anything can happen. Well, through the power of editing, yes, <laughs> the people at home get to see it whenever it happens. That's right. I was down there at Kennedy Space Center, but holding down a fort for us here at the Carolina Weather Group was Jared Smith, who is joining me once again. Jared, uh, hello. Here we are. Deja vu all over again, my dear friend. How are you? And it was at about at this point where the glitch, the ground system for the TT started to rear itself. Well, under four minutes now to launch of Crew 6. Two Americans, an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates, and one from Russia, making up this international flight to the International Space Station. Prior to in Charlotte North, getting to know NASA and SpaceX this weekend at yeah, Kennedy, we'll share it with you all. And on behalf of Jared Smith in Charleston, let's listen in now to the last 60 seconds of the countdown of NASA SpaceX Crew 6 from Kennedy Space Center. Also wait for a call of the arming of the flight termination system. The Dragon flight computers are configured for launch. Flight termination system will allow Falcon 9 to talk to Dragon on the right uphill. Terminate the flight, Falcon issuing an abort. Dragon is in countdown. T-minus one minute and counting. Dragon is in countdown. Everything's looking good for launch. 
Go for lunch. E-minus 30 seconds. E-minus 30 seconds and counting. All teams pulled go. 15 seconds. Ready for an on-time launch for the instantaneous e 10, win. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Engines full power and lift off. The cruise pick. Go Dragon, go Falcon. Downrange, 1.7 million pounds of thrust provided by the nine Merlin 1D engines on the first stage. Hearing good calls, stage one propulsion is nominal. A few more clouds in the sky, Kennedy, tonight than there were the other night. Vehicle is supersonic. Max Q. Stage one, throttle up. All right, now that we're past Max Q. One Bravo. Copy, one Bravo. So Max Q is when the rocket is under the most stress during the liftoff. To track about the position of the Falcon 9 and the Dragon as they make their way up the eastern seaboard. You know, ahead of the trip, people told me two things. It makes a really loud sound, and it looks like a sun in the sky. Started. And I can see both of those things on the video here tonight. We're about 30 seconds away from main engine cutoff which will be followed quickly by stage separation and second engine start, which is the ignition of that MVAC engine on the second stage. Jared, they're taking a look here inside. You're out. One of the booster rockets that Copy will peel away. Separation confirmed. And I can see it on the, I can see it perfectly on the weather satellite. I'm looking forward to seeing that in a few minutes. Yes, it, it is. It, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very clear. And in a minute or so, the first stage will be beginning its burn to land. We have a question in our YouTube. How many gravities was Q-Max? The Crew Dragon's engines can propel it half a mile in just under 7.5 seconds, exerting up to four Gs, which is four times the force of Earth's gravity. Okay, we're looking at the booster rocket now, coming back down to planet Earth, landing on a SpaceX drone ship. We're looking straight down the barrel. You can see it's got little feet. They're kind of like flippers or propellers and it's going to help it kind of come in here it is obviously has its engine on then it's to slow its descent it's still coming down gravity is still stronger than the force upward but it's trying to slow itself down in order to not crash Stage into one entry its landing pad. and i think they maybe just landed it that's so cool so uh, Jer jared uh has been geeking out in my preview monitor with a smirk on his face nerding is... out yeah about what he has observed on weather satellite yes capturing tonight's launch from kennedy yeah in this Florida. is pretty cool this is pretty cool let's see there it is wow and then this little dark spot right here that like where where my mouse has been and i realize that that's kind of gone away now but um i'll point it out again here in a second that's smoke that's just the trailing smoke from the launch and you can see just how fast that thing goes. Yep. Um, Jared, how many frames on satellite was that actually picked up on? About four or five. So because we're taking pictures every 30 seconds, yeah, we were able to get four or five frames. But on behalf of Jared Smith, Peter Palanamente, and everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, I'm James Briarton. Thanks so much for joining us. Go Crew 6.
where I'm currently standing. Don't stand. Don't stand where I'm currently standing is what I was just told. Gather for every single launch. This is an operational uh, <laughs> location. Um, every single launch. Less than one mile per hour. Uh, the, yes. Operational move. We're walking this way. We're back. We're Thank going. you. We're going. <laughs> Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Oh, God. Oh, I'm taking a video. I should have suspected as much. Safely up to space. Also out here at the launch complex. And that's the time. They literally, as you might be able to hear in the background, getting time countdowns. Hey, Scotty. And be sure to subscribe to the Carolina Weather Group on YouTube for live coverage of the Crew-7 launch and the return of Crew-6 back here to Earth. From the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, I'm James Briarton. Thanks. For